been a joy to be reflecting on the goodness of God with you all this morning. We have the, the pleasure now of being able to, to experience more of the goodness of God in his word. I invite you to open up uh, your Bibles to John 7 and 8. We're going to continue in our series of unfolding Jesus and his revelatory statements about himself. We've talked about how he, he says he is the living water. He is the son of the father. He is the bread of life. And this morning we'll learn more from John 7 and 8. And I um, want to remind you each time we open up God's word, this, this is an example of the goodness of God when we see his revelation, this gift to us. We believe as a church family that this word is authoritative. It is inerrant and it is, there was a third thing I was going to say about that, and it is inspired. This is the inspired word of God. So we, we enter into this time of listening to his word trusting that this is his word to us. This morning, we're going to look at a lot of text, John 7 and 8, two full chapters. And because of that, I've, uh, you should have received a, an outline when you walked in this morning. And that outline is just walking you through and helping you remember all the, the territory that we're covering. It's seven different snapshots of a dialogue, ongoing dialogue that we'll be looking at in these two chapters. If you didn't receive one of those, um, you're welcome to, to make your way to the back. Um, and they are, there are more at the connection desk. Um, ushers will be available to give those to you if you need one. So we'll, the, the first section of this text is the first 13 verses. We learn a few things about the context of what we'll read over these two chapters. So first of all, Jewish leaders are looking for a way to kill Jesus. Second, Jesus is headed to the Festival of Tabernacles. That was one of three annual festivals where uh, Jews were expected to come to Jerusalem and celebrate together. And in this particular one, they spent the whole week living in tents as, as a way of um, reenacting or reminding themselves of after God had brought them out of Egypt and he had provided for them in the desert on their way to the promised land. So this was reminding them of God's plan of redemption. He, he saves them from Egypt. He provides for them in tents in the, promised land, or in the desert on their way to the promised land. So they're celebrating this festival of tabernacles. Jesus is headed there and people are watching for him. Some believe he was good. Some believed that he was deceiving the people. And, and many, the, the common denominator was many people were afraid to say anything about him publicly because they were afraid of what the Pharisees would do to them. So in these two chapters that we'll look at, we'll see seven snapshots of dialogue that Jesus has with Jewish people throughout the festival. We're going to jump from one to the next, noticing the primary thrust of the, of the dialogue along the way. So the first uh, section of dialogue is in or verses 14 through 24. And we read that halfway through the festival, Jesus goes to the temple courts to preach, and the people are amazed at his teaching. We read this in verses 15 and through 17. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? And Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. 
Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So he is saying that his teaching came from the one who sent him. The one who sent him is God. He later addresses the religious leaders and he says, you, you, don't, even, you don't even obey the law of Moses. Yet you're looking at me and you're trying to kill me because in your estimation, I've broken the law of Moses by healing on the Sabbath. Moses commanded you to circumcise your boys and you believe it's right to circumcise on the Sabbath. Yet you claim it's against the law for me to heal someone both physically and spiritually on the Sabbath. Keep in mind that circumcision is a physical uh, cleansing in a small sense that is really all about how it points to the spiritual cleansing that we all need. So the religious leaders, um, they accept that it's okay to do this sign of physical cleansing, um, this, this act of physical cleansing that points to the need for spiritual cleansing. And it's okay to do that symbol on the Sabbath, but it's not okay to actually significantly physically heal and spiritually heal someone on the Sabbath. I hope that doesn't line up for you because Jesus looks at the people and he says, you need to think more deeply about this. This conclusion that you're coming to, it doesn't line up. But the people say, well, we don't believe you, Jesus, because you're disobeying the law. And Jesus says, you're not properly understanding the law. You're not thinking deeply about this. So the first question that I want you to reflect on for a moment is, is this, are you thinking deeply about the claims of Jesus? Perhaps think for a moment, how deeply do you think about your job performance, your job effectiveness throughout the week? How deeply do you think about your handling of money? How deeply do you think about your fantasy football team, your pursuit of popularity, your, um, your amassing of as much comfort as you can. How deeply do you think about these things? Are you thinking deeply about the claims of Jesus? The main point in this first snapshot is that Jesus' teaching comes from the one who sent him, who is God. The next snapshot comes from verses 25 through 44. The people conclude about halfway through the festival that, well, since the Pharisees aren't arresting Jesus, then the people conclude the Pharisees must have concluded that Jesus is who he says he is and that his teaching is true. Or some conclude, um, as they think through that, they, they discern that, well, this can't possibly be the Messiah because we know where he comes from. He comes from Nazareth, and the Messiah prophesied in Scripture is to come from Bethlehem. We read Jesus' response in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 7. And he says, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. I am from him and he sent me. Those are two huge statements, bigger than perhaps we realize on our first reading. 
When you look at the Greek context of what he says, when he says he's from God, he did not simply mean that God arranged for his coming, but he is from God in the same way that a sunbeam, a beam of light is from the sun. So, so that's different. A, a beam of light is actually part of the sun. That's different than if I was to give Sharon a cookie, that cookie would be from me, but that cookie is not part of me. So when Jesus says he is from God, that is like I am the, be, the sun beam from the sun. I am part of God. That's an incredible statement. He says next, he sent me. And in stating this clearly, Jesus was saying that he was the Christ of God, the anointed one, the one whom God sent into the world to accomplish his work of redemption. So the main point in this snapshot is that Jesus is equal to God and he is the promised Messiah. So we read the response in verse 30 and 31. This shouldn't surprise us. At this, they tried to seize him. He had just claimed that he was God and that he was the sent one. So they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. So some oppose him vehemently and some believed in him. The Pharisees caught wind of this and they they send a number from the temple guard to go arrest Jesus. And and those individuals go to arrest him, but they get caught up in the confusion of some believing him and some not. And and they don't arrest him and they return to the Pharisees. And, And we read this interaction in verses 45 and 46. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priest and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? Why haven't you arrested him? And they replied, no one, no one ever spoke the way this man does. So the Pharisees do not believe in Jesus. The temple guards are not sure what to do. One of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, he asked for the group to pause and say, let's Let's hear him out. And the other Pharisees say, are are you kidding? He's crazy. Do you hear what he's saying? Do you hear what he's claiming? But Nicodemus calls them to hear him out. So here's the, the second reflection question to consider. Are you hearing him out or are you tuning him out? I I might think that um, hearing him out is spending time in his word and hearing his words. Tuning him out is this, his words live somewhere else. I may or may not pick them up on a Sunday morning. I may or may not pick them up occasionally, but his words are somewhere else. And I live the majority of my week tuning him out. Are you hearing him out or are you tuning him out? The next snapshot, number four, that we look at is in verses 12 through 20 of chapter 8. You'll notice we we jumped over a a section of chapter 8 that is a story that happens at a different time, that is a beautiful story about Jesus, but, but we're sticking with this dialogue that he has during the festival. So in verse, uh, we read here in this section that Jesus says he is the light of the world. And this is where we're going to focus next week. So we won't say a lot about that in this moment. 
What follows that is this argument over the validity of Jesus's claims. And in verse 13, we read, the Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. And Jesus' response to them is this. He says, my testimony on my behalf is valid because I'm from God. I'm from above. I can testify for myself. And in fact, so does God the Father testify for me. I can testify for myself because I am from above. We think of John the Baptist when he baptized Jesus and the spirit descended on him like a dove and the voice was heard from heaven from God the Father. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus has the testimony from the Father. The main point here is this, that Jesus is from above and he, God the Father and God the Son, they testify together to the truth of his claims. The next snapshot of this dialogue is in verses 21 through 30, where Jesus says, I am from and returning to another place, from above, with God. You are from this world but I am from above. No one in this world can save you. You need a perfect, holy redeemer. That is a redeemer from above. I am from above. If you do not believe that I am he, the one I claim to be, the Messiah from God, then you will die in your sins. Those are some bold claims that Jesus is making. So understandably so, again, some believe him and some don't believe him. Why don't some believe him? And I think we, if we process this, we realize it's because Jesus was clearly a man. He was standing in front of them. They knew him. They could see him. They could touch him. He was clearly a man. And he's claiming to be God. They don't have a category for that. So they knew of Greek emperors, Roman leaders. They, they knew of certain kings and rulers that had risen to such fame that those rulers claimed to be divine. But even in those situations, those were rulers who claimed to be divine as one of thousands of gods. This is a man standing in front of them claiming to be the one true God. He's claiming to be God and to be separate from God. And he's proving this every step along the way through his character, through his teaching, and through his miracles. The main point here is that Jesus is fully man and fully God. The sixth snapshot that we'll look at as we turn the corner to these last two snapshots of this dialogue, Jesus says, I have come from God to set you free. And the people say, well, we're not slaves to anyone. We don't need to be freed. Jesus says, anyone who sins is a slave to sin and needs a redeemer sent from God. And the people don't believe it. They say, you can't say we're slaves to sin because we're children of Abraham. They couldn't hear it because they were fixated on how they deserved redemption. They, they, they deserved it because they were children of Abraham. Jesus comes to set us free. 
The third question to think about is this. Do you need redemption? Do you need the redemption that Jesus is offering? There's so many things that we are capable of. We, we earn a living. We, we provide all of these things. And, and for us to just slow down and ask, do I need, do I need the redemption that Jesus is offering? It's an honest question that he wants us to face. The last snapshot that I want to look at with you is in verses 48 through 49. The people look at Jesus and they say, aren't we right in saying that you are demon-possessed? You're crazy. You're out of your mind. You realize what you're claiming. And Jesus' response is this. Whoever obeys me will not see death, but will be saved. The crowd's response is, well, Well, Abraham died. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Did you know him? And Jesus' response is this. Before Abraham was born, I am. Now, this was an audacious claim. As Jesus speaks these words, I am. That was the the name that God gave um, to Moses. This Moses in in Exodus 3.14 Moses says, God, who am I to tell that, uh, when I say the people, uh, tell the people that you sent me, what name should I give them? And, and God says, I am who I am. In Hebrew, it's four letters, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, I am who I am sent you. So throughout the ages, the the Israelite people so revered the name of Jesus, they so longed not to take the name of God in vain that they wouldn't say it out loud. If it was written down and they looked at it as they read it out loud, they would substitute the word Adonai, which was a general word for the Lord. So they grow up so revering the name of God, Yahweh. They see it written, but they never speak it. And they hear this man, Jesus, who is a man, and they hear him say, before Abraham was, Yahweh. So it makes sense that they pick up stones to kill him. Jesus was fully man, and he claimed to be fully God. That's an audacious claim. But his character and his teaching and his miracles supported that claim. So what do they do with him? What do we do with him? We can either deny him as a blasphemer, which is what many of the people in that day did. We can dismiss him because we are indifferent about the existence of a God who is involved in our world, which is what many people in our culture today do. Or we can worship him Offering our everything to him. Romans 12, 1 says, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies, your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. So the last question to reflect on is this. Which one are you doing? In the midst of everything, the hard, the the not so difficult, the distracting, in the midst of everything in your life, which are you doing? Are you denying him? Are you dismissing him? Or are you worshiping him?
If you're not worshiping him, then you're denying or dismissing him. And worship is not just the the beautiful thing we do when we gather on Sunday morning. Worshiping him is, is your life offering to him. I want to invite the praise team to come up and lead us in a song of response. And this song that they are going to lead us in continues this reflection As we ask these questions, is Jesus worthy of our worship? Is Jesus worthy of your life, your life of worship? Is he your highest pursuit? More than comfort, more than success, more than money, is he worthy of your life of worship? Because if Jesus is the eternal God, he is worthy of our worship. I invite you to stand and consider this together as we sing.